Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. COVID-19 has infected more than 33 million people worldwide and has been detected in nearly every country. To combat this global pandemic, the healthcare industry is racing to find a safe and effective vaccine. With over 42 vaccine candidates now in human trials, I'm here with Binamics Mindy McGrath and Ryan Hummel to discuss the latest in vaccine development and distribution. Welcome, Mindy and Ryan. Hi there. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having us. I'm so excited to dive into our conversation. There is a ton going on in this space. So Operation Warp Speed set the ambitious goal to produce and deliver 300 million doses of safe and effective COVID-19 vaccines, with the initial doses to be available as soon as January 2021. What changes to the traditional vaccine development process are being undertaken to try to make that happen? You know, Jen, I think it's really remarkable, the efforts that have been undertaken to try to speed up the development of a vaccine when you think about traditional vaccine cycles of development. Um, the collaborative effort as well, I think, has really shown through um, over the course of the last you know, six months as different life sciences companies have tried to match strengths with other partners in order to accelerate the development process. You know, from a regulatory standpoint, um, you know, I think what's, what's been interesting to see is like in this effort to try to deliver you know, 300 million safe and effective doses, um, the FDA is setting the trial protocols, which is unusual. I mean, that's just not the way that typical protocols are developed. Um, and I think trying to do things simultaneously. So when you think about traditional ways of developing vaccines, there's a linear type of process to it. Uh, and, and some of this risk today is now falling on life sciences companies who, while they are in you know, phase three trials, are actually starting the manufacturing process with the expectation that there will be um, FDA approval. So I think that's what's changed is that there is more of a stacking of some of the the different phases of the vaccine development process. And that is what is um, being undertaken to try to accelerate the ability to get a vaccine to the market in a much quicker time period. And, and I said it was remarkable, and I think it's remarkable for a reason. When you think about the last vaccine that was developed for months, it still took five years to develop it. We are talking anywhere between 12 and 18 months for development of the vaccine, and that is incredibly quick. Mindy, that's a really good point. And I think when you think about the term Operation Warp Speed, it really is living up to its name. You know, specifically, I want to mention that the development and all of the news that happens is really in the public's eye. And that's something that's brand new. I don't, I don't remember in my lifetime, and certainly everything is new these days, that we're seeing day by day news coming out around the development of, of this vaccine. And the fact that nine pharmaceutical companies are issuing joint pledges on standing by the science and investing millions and billions of dollars to truncate this process from you know the normal lifeline of eight to 15 years into you know a year or a year and a half is, is really the fastest ever and you mentioned kind of you know where is this a precedent you know i think we've heard that mumps was probably the fastest ever at five years but the collaboration the coordination amongst these life science companies 
along with it being under great public scrutiny in the news every single day is what really makes this new. Great points, Ryan. I think another thing that is so interesting and maybe unprecedented to me in the vaccine development here and the government's involvement is just how far reaching it is too. We're not looking just at funding um, and increased focus on review timelines to make sure we can keep up with the namesake, but you're seeing distribution and manufacturing partnerships being negotiated um, on behalf of the government to make sure that all the requisite levers are in place well before we even have a licensure or an emergency use authorization. Jen, I think that's the other interesting aspect of it. And I think that speaks to some of the stacking that I talked about in terms of the process and the approach, um, but just how much uh, of a hybrid collaboration there needs to be not only in the commercial circuits, but also with the regulatory bodies to enable this type of, um, of speed. Thanks, Mindy. I'm also curious to see, you know, what precedent does this set for vaccine development going forward, potentially? I think a lot of the science critique of where we are in vaccine development has to do with, you know, drug development really being reactive and market-driven versus proactive. And I'm curious to see if this type of development pathway, if successful, could change the game when it comes to vaccine development worldwide. Well, I think it's going to be interesting to see which candidates actually receive approval because there are some new platforms also being used, um, specifically when I think about Moderna and some of the other newer um, companies coming into the mix. And so the question becomes that if those platforms are successful, do they reframe the way that vaccine development actually occurs? And I think we have to wait and see just how successful they are in, in this um, vaccine effort. Yeah, I think we'll get to more dialogue around distribution, Jen and Mindy. But one thing that I think will be really interesting to see is you're seeing a lot of these development of these vaccines be under great temperature differences than what we're used to from vaccinations and vaccines. And quite frankly, it'll be interesting to see how we react and how future vaccinations and medications have the same issue and how the recipients of these life science medicines change the way they do business. Meaning, you know, I don't know if a lot of health systems, hospitals, retail pharmacies are actually ready from an infrastructure perspective for, you know, minus 70 degrees storage facilities. But hopefully when they are ready, it will not be for just one product that these types of storage and distribution methodologies will be for other medications in the future. Thanks, Ryan. I think distribution is definitely something that is on everyone's mind as we get further and further along the development pathway from a clinical perspective. In mid-September, uh, HHS, in partnership with the DOD and CDC, did share a distribution strategy and interim playbook for local jurisdictions to plan their vaccination response. I'd love to dive into what challenges you both see as local health systems try to development and ultimately execute their vaccine distribution plan. Well, yeah, I think I mentioned earlier, I kind of put this dialogue earlier than we had planned, but it's really important. This phase structure um, that was put forth in the playbook that you mentioned um, is a really helpful guidebook for health systems and hospitals, kind of theoretically, and this idea of 
centralized distribution that will be executed in phases by the federal government and the jurisdictions within the CDC that works in with them. And then those, those pilot jurisdictions, part, which is part of that playbook, that covers the contiguous U.S., California, Pennsylvania, um, North Dakota, I think Minnesota and Florida are also there. We'll kind of utilize this basic plan, and those will be kind of the hubs of sort. Um, but that phase structure, and I think there's three main phases, really kind of tell a great story of how this vaccine may be stockpiled and inventoried and shipped out really effectively and efficiency. The problem, as I mentioned earlier, or, or the opportunity perhaps, is the fact that the expected cold chain storage and handling requirements are very unique, right? Um, we're used to vaccinations being either ambient temperature or refrigerated, or even some, you know, frozen slushy, as they call it, vaccinations. But some of the some of the immunizations in development now in the late stages of testing must be stored at temperatures. And I and I mentioned 70 degrees Fahrenheit. I was wrong. It's actually potentially as cold as minus 80 degrees Celsius, which is over 100 degrees minus in Fahrenheit. And it's almost like similar to, to transporting ice cream or steaks or frozen kind of cattle to supermarkets. And, and hospitals and pharmacies and local physician offices, you know, they're going to need to be able to house these and, and they don't have these specialized freezers. So I know there's a mad dash by logistics and public health and drug industry officials to get them there, but I see that as a real big opportunity and need for folks to get ready, to have a plan for, and, and, and just have this dialogue now so that they're ready to receive them thoughtfully. I think that's a really good point, Ryan, um, because when I think about the plan that was laid out, um, while, yes, definitely some opportunity, and just the complexity of the supply chain that we are dealing with is is um, is probably unlike anything we see in other areas of drug distribution. And I think the other thing that's going to be um, a bit of a coordination challenge is that I, we are talking about that many of these vaccines that are going to need second doses um, within like a 21 to 28 day time period, and so that means um, being able to track and trace exactly which clinics facilities, health systems are procuring which vaccines to ensure that patients are getting the same vaccine. So in some cases, you need the second vaccine. It needs to be exactly the same producer as the first one. So I think the storage and handling piece of this is almost like can't be underscored how important it is going to be to the successful execution of getting these vaccines into the public market. And I, I just want to add to, I think, the, the solution to efficient supply chain is to get the right product at the right time to the right patient. Um, and that right patient is something that is very concerning to me as well. We know in society that we many times have really great initiatives and thoughts around getting this product to those folks that need it the most, those folks with comorbidities, those folks that actually have um, the, the bigger need to receive this vaccination, but the actual follow through and the action of getting it to those places is much more difficult than say, you know, uh, a large health system. So I think of rural hospitals, I think of inner cities and locations that really are going to struggle to get this product. So, um, you know, getting it out there on the table, talking about it out loud now is really the key to getting these, the answers to these right questions under the, like the supply chain credos uh, handled. Yeah, I think it's definitely going to take a village, Ryan. This isn't something that, although there is a central single distributor that can be tackled alone, and I know 
I've seen some statistics about the HHS already starting to work their networks to expand beyond traditional CDC channels with, you know, almost 30 private sector organizations in talks about potential partnerships and distribution um, consultations with over 150 organizations that are focused on addressing health disparities and engaging with, you know, faith groups, community groups, really just trying to make sure that they are blanketing the approach here in terms of communication and delivery to be outside of what we've maybe seen before in traditional vaccine delivery channels. I completely agree. And just one more thing to add, um, Mindy brought up the point that there are a good, a good, there is a good chance that this is going to take two vaccines to be effective. So when we get the first vaccine wave figured out, we just have to turn around and do it right again for the, for the second wave of vaccines. And um, getting compliance for patients to do that is going to be so very difficult. So these community organizers and public health um, advocates and ambassadors are even more important than you know, ever before. So it'll be very fascinating to see. Right. And I think, Ryan, it's not just about that, but it's, we talk about storage and handling. It's also about capacity planning, right? Getting people through the doors and having enough, um, enough staff to actually get the second round of, of the vaccinations done. Absolutely. Yeah, I think provider recruitment will be a key element to ensuring that the vaccine is able to move uh, from phase one to phase two in terms of distribution as we see, you know, supply go up certainly, but also the demand will go up quite a bit, most likely, and we need to make sure that there are contingencies in place for surge planning, uh, non-traditional sites, while still keeping in mind the limitations of the vaccine in terms of the cold storage requirements the need to potentially get the vaccine within 21 days, two doses. Um, it will certainly be a big undertaking for all those involved. I'd love to build off this idea of community engagement and really getting the word out, right, to make sure people, A, know what's coming. I think we've talked about how the news is really keeping track of the latest in vaccine development. But, you know, there's a saying in the medical community that vaccines don't save lives, vaccinations do. I'm really curious to hear your guys' thoughts on how public health providers, health plans, and other industry players could perhaps start to sow the seeds and encourage adoption of future COVID-19 vaccines. So I would say, Jen, the, the word that comes to mind for me when I think about all of the activities that, that are going to have to go on to um, encourage adoption is going to be trust. So if you think about what we have titled this effort, it's Operation Warp Speed, right? And I think there's two benefits to it, and there's also some challenges. One is concern, right, that, that maybe going at warp speed has compromised safety, efficacy, durability of the vaccine. And I think it's been terrific to see life sciences companies take the pledge that they will not cut corners scientifically or at the expense of health and safety to ensure that a vaccine that comes to market is as good as it can possibly be. I think the second thing is, um, you know, Operation Warp Speed also shows the power of the collective healthcare system and their ability to try to bring a solution that is, um, you know, impacting the entire country. And so I think that, um, underscoring all of that is going to be how much do people trust 
that the product that's coming to market is actually safe and that no corners were cut? And how much do they trust health plans and their providers to um, discern whether somebody is um, an appropriate candidate for receiving those vaccines? You know, on the second the second part of that, I think, is when you think about the efforts that HHS will likely have to undertake with partners to get the word out. That is going to be something that's going to be critically important, too, is like, how quickly can you get the word out? How do you direct people to where they need to be to actually access a vaccine? Because not every physician's office or clinic may have them. There might be opportunities where pharmacies that are, you know, um, have bricks and mortar, uh, are able to, to actually dispense the vaccine. And I think HHS has to have a collective um, effort to drive awareness and publicize um, where folks can actually find these vaccines. And they have to do not only themselves, but I think working with some of those partners we talked about. So like, if you think about the CDC every year, right? Um, basically helps drive uh, awareness of flu vaccine and other vaccines that might come to the market. But HHS also has communication channels with private sector, um, with other public health sectors, with social services sectors. So um, utilizing, I think, all of those levers in order to drive awareness and also call to action and, and getting you know, everybody to, to actually take the next step to not only take the initial vaccine, but get their booster shot is going to be critical. Yeah, Mindy, I think one of the things I want to hop on is that idea of communication. I think, you know, part of our role at Dynamic many times with our clients is helping remind them that a communication strategy is the key, right? And I think that when you think about these multi-agency approaches um, and all of the elements that go into it, a, a, a very sturdy, consistent communication is key. And and to actually answer your question, Jen, around the idea of ultimately executing this this complex you know, first of its kind distribution plan. You know, Paul Offit, who is the director of Vaccine Education Center and an attending physician of infectious diseases in our backyard at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, said it will take two things to bring this virus under control. And one of them is just the vi vaccine. The other one is hygienic measures, and you can't have one without the other. You know, I think what he is saying is, yes, the vaccine or the vaccination and the and people actually getting the vaccination is really important. But it's not a cue to take your mask off. It's not a cue to run free in a, in a new world. This is, this is an evolutionary kind of progress and story we're talking about, not revolutionary. And it's talked about in the phases of this distribution plan. So we have to be really clear about what this vaccination is actually going to do. It's part of a, a long story of curbing this pandemic to help create immunity for our society. And it's going to take very, very effective communication. And as we know, even before this vaccination, I would say the communication is not necessarily landing as consistently as we'd like to across the country um, for many reasons. But I think we have to get really thoughtful and smart about communication going forward. Yeah, I think that's a very fair point about how communication you know, while getting better has maybe fallen short in the past and could be something that we need to overcome in the vaccine rollout to make sure we're achieving the right levels of immunity as a community. Um, looking at some recent Ipsos numbers, you know, in the United States alone, about a third of Americans are saying that they wouldn't get a vaccine if it came available. And 
you know, when you talk to experts from the World Economic Forum, like Arnaud Barnett, you know, even a shortfall of 26% confidence can be significant enough to compromise the integrity and effectiveness of any vaccine that's being rolled out. So I think it is that larger mindset that we need clear, effective communication to get people A, on board with the vaccine, but B, understanding like this is a long-term play. We're going to need to take significant inventory and consideration to all aspects of health moving forward when it comes to reducing the spread of communicable diseases. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that plays back to what we were talking about, trust and activating people to actually take this step and then wrapping it with some of the other basic public health measures that we've already adopted so that it comes together as a much more united approach to addressing coronavirus. Absolutely. And if I just, I just want to add, you know, we've been doing a lot of research and study on this exact topic today. And, you know, I go to a, to a survey where, we, where humans were asked the reason for not wanting to take the vaccine if it were available and resoundingly across the world, it doesn't really matter what country, give or take, the number one reason is I'm worried about the side effects. So when we talk about communication, I think, you know, the most important focal point for the communication should be about that. We know or we've read um, that there could be potential minor side effects with taking the vaccination. And we just have to be very careful and clear about that to mitigate that fear and be upfront and honest. And I think that stat alone that kind of covers every country is concerning to me, but the fact that we have that data and understand it means we can react accordingly. Mm -hmm. Ryan, I think it goes back to just, you know, generally speaking, when we're talking about whether it's vaccines or other types of pharmaceutical agents, I mean, when regulatory bodies are evaluating whether to approve a product or not, there is always a risk reward type of, um, decision-making that goes into it. Like, what is the risk and does, does the risk offset what the reward could be? Uh, so, and I, I think sometimes it's like people in the industry just understand that anything related to me medicine is not always going to be perfect, but if the benefits outweigh the risks, you know, communicating those risks is important, but making the decision based on what those benefits may be could be even more important. So um, I think that is, to your point, part of, of what's vital in the communication aspect and trying, trying to ensure that there is, um, we're able to activate enough people to be inoculated so that it can become part of our, our defensive strategy in, in trying to get to a point where we can really curb um, the growth of the coronavirus. Yeah, Mindy, I think another piece that could be important for people that might not know as much about drug development and rollout too is understanding the impact that the quote-unquote phase four, the post-authorization tracking is going to have on this vaccine, making sure they understand that there are safeguards in place regardless of the speed of development. You know, you've seen the pledges from the life science companies, you've seen AstraZeneca take the appropriate pause when they had some concerning effects within their trials. So pulling that level of support and safety through to, you know, post rollout, make sure people know that this isn't just going to be rolled out and we'll see what happens, that there are the appropriate safeguards in place to make sure that they know that this, the benefits are not outweighing the costs, even when it's being deployed widely. Well, Mindy and Ryan, thank you both. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. 
around, you know, some of the future challenges and opportunities we see with the exciting progress that's being made in vaccine development. So I look forward to talking with you both on what could be happening in the future. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and to explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.